0: But well, we're uh, continuing in the Gospel of John today, and uh, as I mentioned, and as Travis read in Psalm 77, um, and if you heard just even the opening lines of that, uh, how, how long, oh Lord, do you even hear me, I, you know, I, I think about you and I just groan, uh, you don't even let me sleep at night. There are many, many times in our life that we don't understand uh, what God is actually doing uh, in our life. Um, be very frustrating very confusing uh, very dark very lonely very isolated but we have to know that we're not alone in this even as we heard in that psalm that even the psalmists even many people in God's word went through these exact same thoughts feelings questions doubts it's common I would even say that it's actually normal for every believer to have those kinds of moments or seasons of even severe doubts, even excessive struggle, questioning. I mean, just a quick cursory overview of many of the saints throughout the Bible. And many of the Psalms would see that this is a normal and common thing for us as believers to wonder, to doubt, to be frustrated at times, to be confused, to have these kind of moments of darkness you know, we wonder things, we question, we doubt, we fear. And this is just, it's just human. It's human to do this. If you're not God, you're going to doubt. You're going to, you're going to wonder. Uh, you're going to have fear. But it's also, I think it's kind of ironically, I think it's our very doubts and questions and fears and anxieties and struggles that are actually even the very road that we take in order to find ultimate and true strength and peace and trust and joy and contentment, these uh, struggles that we have and even the disappointments in our life, I think, are our path to actually truly find Jesus and contentment in Christ. It's kind of through those things, in those things, where we find out who Jesus really actually is. What he really actually came to do, and what we really actually have to look forward to. And so, with that in mind, I just would like to pray for us. Pray for our hearts, our minds. And you know, when we come in through those gates, we come into this courtyard. Uh, we don't we don't leave our worries and our fears there, and then kind of put on this face and this smile and sing these songs and. You know, act like everything's okay. No, we bring all that stuff through those gates. We bring it with us to this place. We don't put on a show. We don't, you know, do all that stuff. We we bring everything. Fears, doubts, insecurities. We bring it all to this place. And God has put it in our schedule that weekly we would come to this place and we'd have an opportunity to put all these things, lay them before the Lord, lay them at the cross, and we're able to put on this lens of the gospel, lens of God's promises. And it doesn't mean these things are going to go away. It doesn't mean that when we leave those gates, all the stuff is gone. But we hopefully leave here with a clearer view, a different perspective, a better biblical gospel perspective that helps us get through them. It doesn't make them go away, but helps us to walk out from this place and knowing how, as again, as Travis read in Psalm 77, how to walk with God through the sea. Right, how to walk through it. It's his way is through the sea. Uh, and so we thank the Lord that this is his idea for us to be here today. It's a great idea. So glad he thought of it. And uh, we just want to pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning to have these truths find a home in our hearts. Father in heaven, you are a good and perfect God and Father. You run to us in our weakness, in our despair, even in our sin. You gather us up in your arms. You put your robe upon us, your ring upon us. You throw us a celebration because we're yours, because we're your sons and your daughters. And this is all only because... In love, you gave this mission, this task to your son to come to this earth and die in our place, pay the penalty for our sin, be the bridge for our separation. And from his own love, in love, he also then agreed to this. And with the joy set before him, he endured the cross for our sake. And so as we open your word today, as we sit here in this, this weather, the sunlight, amongst friends and family, we just we thank you that this is your design. You've called us to be a family. And not just with those here in this courtyard, and not just with those who are at home watching, but with all the saints, all the brothers and sisters across this globe and throughout history, you've called us together, you've gathered for yourself together, one people to be your flock, and you are our good shepherd. So Jesus, would you shepherd us into green pastures of your word, to the living water, and Holy Spirit, would you bring us into truth? bring these truths into our minds and our hearts where we see them and savor them differently than we ever have before. We thank you, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Again, this is the week of Passover. This is the final week of Jesus' life. The last uh, half of the Gospel of John will deal with this one week. Uh, So this... Most of John is dedicated to this final week of Jesus' life. And this is the very beginning of the Passover week. So this is the next day. This is the next day after Mary had washed the feet of Jesus with the uh, ointment. This is the next day the large crowd had come to the feast, Passover. Uh, They had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So think about what they're saying here, what they're declaring. Hosanna, blessed is he, they're waving these at Jesus, blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're declaring by the waving of these palm branches and their shouts, here comes the king, make way for the king. This is a big deal right here. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. A young donkey. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Kind of watching scenarios going, what's going on here? I don't understand what's going on here didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So this crowd just kept telling people this is the king. He rose Lazarus from the dead. Now The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees Said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Remember, they're plotting to kill both Jesus and Lazarus because they're kind of seeing the beginning of maybe this insurrection. So they're saying, look, we have to do something about it because, look, everyone's going after him here. Now, a little bit of background here, kind of on what's going on. Um, records from uh, 64 and 65 AD, which would be about 30-ish, 35 years after this event, But around the similar time, records from 64 or 65 AD um, say that about 2.7 million people came into town those two different years for Passover into Jerusalem. 2.7 million. So it really is safe to say that, you know, probably around this time, roughly around 33 AD, there's probably at least around 2 million people that would have come into town. For this Passover feast, so we're talking like very crowded Jerusalem. It's a tiny little place. I mean, it's a tiny little town, uh, and so two million people are descending upon Jerusalem, and Jesus is here. There's this, there's just crowds everywhere, and we see here what might seem to us maybe a, a peculiar activity of, of waving these palm branches. The palm branches aren't usually associated uh, with um, uh, with this particular feast, the Passover. But there's a very important and relevant reason to why they were waving palm branches at this particular festival and in this manner. After the very last book of the Old Testament was written, uh, and before the New Testament, in between that time, there were 400 years called the intertestamental times. 400 years in between the Old Testament and New Testament. There was no prophets that spoke at that time. But there were very important events that took place that would become incredibly defining for the Jewish people and their national identity. Uh, In the 2nd century BC, so 200 years before Christ, so right in the middle of this intertestamental period, there was an empire called the Seleucid Empire, which was a Greek empire that was expanding and wanting to take control of Judea, including Jerusalem. They wanted to kind of come in and take over. Uh, They're expanding their empire, and so the Seleucids invaded Jerusalem. And their goal was to completely dismantle the Jewish culture. They wanted to uh, come in and and make it Greek. They wanted to get rid of everything Jewish. And uh, their leader, Antiochus IV, actually went into the temple, the Jewish temple, desecrated it, pillaged it, robbed from it. And in response, uh, there was a Jewish man named Mattathias who became a leader of kind of a guerrilla group of Jews who fought the Seleucids. Kind of this, you know, kind of undercover sort of band of people that would kind of go in and sort of sabotage some of the Seleucids, uh, some of their outposts and their armies and this kind of thing, and kind of under the cover of darkness. Because, you know, they didn't have as much military might, so they had to kind of do things secretly. Uh, And his son, after he passed away, his son was named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, he carried on the work of his father, and Judas Maccabeus became kind of a national hero, sort of a a Robin Hood of sorts for the Jews, robbing from the Seleucids, giving back to Israel. And this guy, Maccabeus, he did so much damage to the Seleucid Empire and their kind of forces there, that they eventually uh, kind of cried uncle and released the temple to the Jews and. 164 AD, so that the Jews could then practice their faith again. So the Seleucids took, uh, took over the temple, but over some time, enough guerrilla warfare from these guys, uh, then Maccabeus got them to sort of finally tap out and say, okay, fine, you can have the temple back. You can start worshiping again as Jews. So they kind of surrendered to them. Now, Jacob and Maccabeus eventually drove the Seleucids completely out of Israel, out of Judea. And this massive celebration and parade was thrown uh, in all of Judea, kind of similar to maybe a, a ticker tape parade for us in you know kind of New York City, kind of the Canyon of Heroes uh, in New York. Uh, but instead of ticker tape, they would wave palm branches. It's just kind of like just a real showy, kind of easy thing to wave. You know, palm branches, are nice and long, and just you know, there's just it's a, 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 a beautiful to be able to see just so many people waving these palm branches. And from that day. Uh, now, even to this day, a palm branch has become a national symbol of Israel to signify a significant military victory of triumph. That's their symbol. This palm tree this was such a huge deal that Jacob Maccabees did this, that a new feast was introduced to Israel's called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. It's kind of like the 4th of July for us. Right? I mean, when you kind of think about what's going on, that's kind of how we won our country from England, right? Kind of more guerrilla style, kind of, you know, uh, kind of grassroots, and getting that freedom. So this is kind of like their 4th of July, and today we more commonly know this feast as Hanukkah. Right, so if you've ever wondered why you don't see Hanukkah in the Old Testament, well, that's why. Because it happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Right? So they celebrate Hanukkah every year. This is the way that they celebrate kind of a 4th of July, this, this moment uh, when Jacob Maccabeus freed Israel from uh, the, the Seleucids. Now, 200 years after this, now we are brought up to the time of Christ.
1: But now it's not the
0: Seleucids that are occupying Israel. Now it's the Romans. Now it's the Romans who are occupying Israel, and the Jews, once again, are fed up. They're fed up with this occupation. Now, about 35 years, just to give a little more context to you, about 35 years after Jesus died, in the mid-late 60s AD, uh, the Jews grew so tired of Roman rule, they began to mint their own coins. So up until this point, they used Roman coins, but to kind of, in a show of defiance, They're saying, look, we're gonna be independent. We're gonna mint our own coins. And so on their coins, guess what they put on one side of their coins? A palm leaf, right? That's how much they carried this symbol of a palm leaf being a military victory, a defiance against any kind of oppressing uh, people group that was coming in trying to take away their faith and their nation. Matter of fact, just even on Tuesday, this last Tuesday, it was announced that uh, many uh, artifacts were found in some more caves in the Dead Sea region. Really, really exciting stuff. You should look it up. They found more uh, fragments from more scrolls from the Dead Sea that date back uh, to thousands of years ago. And among some of the artifacts was a trove of uh, Jewish coins that were emblazoned with palm leaves. Right, so they just found, a, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, in another cave out there. So all that to say is that the palm leaf is an important symbol of military victory for the Jewish people. It is their way of declaring preservation of the Jewish state, of their faith, of their nation, of their people. It's a way of them declaring their, uh, their might and their identity and that we are not going to be conquered by another people. So now we get back to the story. Again, not the Seleucids now, but now it is Rome. And as we've been seeing, both Rome and the Jewish leaders want to avoid an insurrection of Jewish zealots. They don't want another Maccabean-style revolt, right? Because they, they, Rome knows what the Jews did to the Seleucids. And they know what the Jews are capable of if they get fed up enough. So both the Roman leaders are saying, we don't want another Maccabean re- revolt. And the Roman leaders are putting pressure on the Jewish leaders saying, if you let another revolt happen, we're going to depose you. We're going to take everything from you. So they're putting pressure on the Jews. The Jewish leaders were just kind of more like puppets uh, for the Romans. They are Roman-appointed Jewish leaders. So they both have this incentive, both the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, had an incentive to not let another revolt happen. They don't want another revolt. So they're seeing Jesus now as potentially the next Jacob Maccabeus. So something must be done. This is why in verse 19, the Pharisees say to one another, you see that you're you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We need to do something about this guy. This is not good. The people are waving palm branches of all things. And they're declaring him as king. We've got to do something here. It's like a powder keg. Ready to go. So the people were coming out to see him, it says in verse 17, because they had seen him raise Lazarus. They're getting excited. Which we saw last week is also why they want to kill Lazarus as well. So look again at verse 12. The next day the large crowd had come to the feast. They'd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Hosanna, this... A Hebrew word, it's a Hebrew word, it means save now. Save us now. Save now. There's this urgency in this word. And so these people are saying, they're looking at Jesus saying, save us now. Blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, save us now. They're excited. The next Jacob Maccabeus is coming into town. Freedom is on the horizon for us. And this phrase, saves now, is found even specifically in very familiar psalms to the Jews. They're they're called the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118. Uh, Here's one excerpt from it just to kind of see it in context. Psalm 118, verse 24. It says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jews were singing to Jesus. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Give us success. Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the King of Israel. They were looking to Jesus to bring them victory and success to unleash them from the chains and bondage of of Rome and and be their their Robin Hood, their their Jacob Maccabeus. They wanted him to come and and be their king. And, And many, if even maybe not most of them, were expecting him to be arriving now for an overthrow of the Romans and drive them out like Jacob Maccabeus did. But then Jesus did a very perplexing thing something that should have been a cue for everyone. And no no doubt some people in the crowd knew exactly why he truly came, what he was there to do. You know, others maybe would have picked up on this. This coming king of glory, the king of Israel, wasn't coming in that very glory or might or power yet. But rather he was coming lowly and humbly says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, in this day, when a king would come into a conquered city, so let's say it was the Seleucid king coming in, or the Roman Caesar, when he would come into one of his conquered cities, he would come in on a war horse, a powerful an imposing, beautiful royal steed. Decorated with all kinds of war regalia. That's what a king would do when he would come in to show these conquered people who's the boss. Come in with all of his, his swag, just kind of, you know, just all over the place, just saying, Look at me. You're going to bow down before me. We're stronger than you. We're bigger than you. That king would come in to show off his might and his authority. And here's Jesus coming into town on a donkey, and not even that, but a young donkey, a little baby donkey. And young donkeys, and particularly Middle Eastern bred donkeys, are actually much smaller than the ones we even see here. So we're talking like tiny little donkey, like a wee donkey. (laughs) This donkey, uh, these, the donkeys that they would ride, they're so low to the ground that when men would ride them, if they would ever ride them, they would actually have to bend their knees so their feet wouldn't drag on the ground. All right, so this is a funny look inside. It'd be like seeing a grown man riding like a little kid's bike for us. Right, this guy come up, you know, a little basket on the front, you know, training wheels maybe, it's just, you know, big guy. I, I had this picture, if you guys, some I mean, of you have seen Terminator 2, right, Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's a scene, you know, where uh, he says, "Come with me if you want to live." Right? Now, imagine, okay? We I used to have this picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger with his leather jacket, his shades, you know, and on his Harley. Now, if he rolls up and he's on a little kid's bike with his little bell ringing and a little basket with flowers on, he says, "Come with me if you want to live." You're going, I don't think so. Right? That's the picture I have. Right? Like, no, I think I got this. That's, that's kind of the picture here. Here's, here's all these people. I mean, we have two million people in town. And as all these people are looking to Jesus, this is the next Jacob Maccabeus. This is the Terminator. He's coming in to take over the Romans. And he comes in on this donkey, on this little bike, ringing his bell with a little basket of flowers says, Come with me if you want to live. And they're going, I, this guy? This guy? I don't think so. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on. And it says even that the disciples themselves are looking, going, John says they didn't understand what he was doing. They're looking, going, What are you doing here? Why the small donkey? This doesn't make any sense. Now, think about that as you reread this prophecy from Zechariah 9. Fear not! Don't be afraid, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a wee donkey. That's a weird prophecy, right there. But look at the broader context of this prophecy. If you want, you can go with me to Zechariah 9. Verse 9 through 12. I'll read through more of it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, this king, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the end of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, my promise to you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Now this picture of a king on a donkey is not what we would expect. It's not a picture of a conquering king. But when you read through these promises that we see in Zechariah 9... We are forced to ask ourselves, do we believe that? Despite him being um, a little baby donkey, despite him coming into town very unimpressive, do we believe what God's word tells us about him? Or do we believe just what we see right before our eyes? A seemingly weak king on a small little donkey. No big deal. I got this. I can do this on my own. Do we believe that the Lord's ways are actually higher than our ways in our life? Do we believe that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts? Do we believe that God's wisdom is higher and better than our wisdom? Do we believe that God's timing is better than our timing? Do we believe God's plan is better than than our plans for ourselves? Do we believe that even in his foolishness, and I look at this right and think, this is foolishness. No doubt, many people in that crowd, including the disciples themselves, who didn't understand what was going on, they're going, this looks like a bunch of foolishness. Do we believe that even in God's apparent foolishness, that he still confounds the wise? Do we believe that even in his apparent weakness, the king... Bloodied on a cross, dead. That, that's that's a you want a conquering king? He comes into town and he gets killed within a couple days, without a fight. Lets himself be arrested. Lets himself have a a, a sham of a trial. Doesn't even defend himself in trial. And he goes to the cross. That is a weak king right there. Do we believe that even in God's apparent, I say apparent, apparent weakness, he actually shames the strong? That even uses his weakness to even say, look, even in my weakness, I'm stronger than all of you. Even in my foolishness, I'm smarter than all of you. My thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. My wisdom's above your wisdom. My plans are above your plans. I know what I'm doing here. I know it doesn't look like it, but I know what I'm doing here. And you can trust me in this. There are many, many times in our lives, church, where our king does not look like the Messiah, the king that we want him to look like. The king that we wish he was, the king who acted how we would hope that he would. And you and I, we might not have a a Rome or a Seleucid Empire occupying North County, But guess what? Within our own hearts, within our own hearts, there is kind of a a Roman or Seleucid type empire that is wreaking havoc upon us. There's an empire of of lust. There's an empire of, of, of greed or insecurity that is wreaking havoc on this territory. They're occupying parts of our hearts that should only be occupied by Christ alone. And our flesh invades into this place which has been purchased by Christ. And our flesh seeps into our minds, into our hearts, feeds on us. And so this, this empire of, of pride or an empire of arrogance, an empire of pain or sickness or fear or sorrow or grief or anger or an empire of doubts, an empire of bitterness invades into territory where it does not belong. Because your heart belongs to Christ alone, your king. And yet, these empires still find a way to come in and desecrate the temple. Pillage the temple of your own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your flesh wants to put to death any kind of insurrection of the Spirit. Spirit wants to fight against the flesh, flesh against the spirit, and the flesh saying, We gotta put down any kind of insurrection. Right? If, they, if this guy starts thinking about doing good things, reaching out to someone when he's in sin, he's in struggle, we need to put that insurrection down now. We can't let that spirit win. Your flesh is always going to be at war with the spirit inside of you. Always trying to put down those insurrections. Any threat that comes against that empire of, of lust or greed or shame or whatever, in your despair, you're going you're gonna to cry out to the Lord. To come in like a conquering king on his war horse. And sometimes you're going to cry out against these things. You're going to cry out against your lust, against your fear, against your pride. You're going to cry out, God, save me now. Just take this sin away from me. Take away this sickness from me. Take away this trial from me. And instead, we're reminded that God's word says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey, and you're left confused and disillusioned and disappointed. God, I, I, said, I, I said, save me from this sin. How come you're not just taking this sin away from me? How come you're not just making this empire of lust go away? Save now. You're my king. And we wonder, like these fed-up Jews, Why our God, why our king has failed us? When justice is delayed from our view, from our timing, from our plans, from our perspective, we believe that justice has been denied. That justice has failed. Why does this sin keep winning? God, where is your justice? But this is not so with the Lord, because with him, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And his justice will not be mocked forever. Justice will be done. He promises, going back again to Zechariah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That nation, that people group, that empire that is oppressing you, I will. I will cut it off. That sin, that pride, that lust, that fear, it's going to happen. The war horse, I'm going to cut it off from Jerusalem. I'm not going to let those war horses invade Jerusalem. I will cut them off. It's going to happen. The battle boat shall be cut off. And he, this king, will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant that I made with you, because of my promise that I made to you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. Yet in this time, church, in this time, in this life we live now, we wait. And yet we know that we also don't wait as those who wait alone. Back into John chapter 12, verse 16. I find a lot of hope and comfort in this. Verse 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first. Remember, they lived with him for three years, saw firsthand miracles, and yet they didn't see. They didn't see what God was doing. They didn't see what Jesus was up to. They didn't understand his plan, his purpose, his ways. They didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified later, they look back and they remember that these things were written about him. Oh, yeah, the Zechariah thing. That's what he was doing. They remember what had been written about him and what had been done to him. And even here, we see the disciples don't grasp everything going on. they missed what was going on, as we often also are. We we miss things. We don't understand. We don't see what's going on. We know the verses. We know the section of scripture. We know the truth. But in the moment, they're not real to us. These guys probably knew Zechariah 9. It just didn't click they're just, for us, sometimes they're just kind of concepts on a coffee mug, some meme that we put on social media. There have been many times over the past year, 14, 15 months, where uh, I've been operating many times just off of pure conviction, operating out of just what I know is right and true. I might not have much gas in the tank, Maybe sometimes even running on fumes, my vision's blurry, my heart is foggy. And I just I'm just going on pure conviction. I'm going off of what I know is true. I don't, I don't feel certain ways. I'm, I'm, I'm wearied, I'm weak, mentally, emotionally tapped, drained, but I just but I go on what I know is true.
1: And I want Jesus
0: in those times to come in on his war horse and make it all go away. And like the disciples in those moments, I don't understand these things at first. Why is this coming upon me? Why am I so empty? Why am I at this point in my life? And the choices that were set before me are to either believe the fear, the empire of fear, trying to occupy my heart, or the despair of my flesh or I could look to the promises of God and walk by faith when I have no sight. Church, there are pains and sorrows that you don't understand. Even what I would even say that you won't understand or even can't understand. Some things maybe you're not even meant to be able to understand because God's ways and thoughts and plans and wisdom are above but you can know this you can know this your pains your sorrows your griefs your tragedies will all be forced to bow to this king every single trial every hardship every sin every struggle every sickness will be forced to bow to king jesus for your good and for his glory They will serve his purposes in your life. Romans chapter 5 says, verse 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your sufferings somehow will produce endurance. And that endurance will produce character, and that character will produce hope. And this is a hope that won't put you to shame, a hope that won't disappoint you. Uh, this, this, the way that they would use the word hope isn't the way we use it really today. Um, we might say, you know, go out and we say, "Well, I I hope our team wins today. Like, but that's kind of 50-50 or, you know, depending. I mean, it might not be 50-50 depending on the teams, right? Like, that's a long shot. I hope we win. Yeah, probably not, right? So it's not like this hope that's like a maybe hope. It's an anticipation for something that is is set. Uh, Last weekend, we had Liam's first baseball game in a year. Yesterday, we had Micah's first game in a year, and we got to see... Uh, some other boys' first games yesterday in a year, um, and uh, we hoped for the day when baseball would be back. And uh, we didn't doubt that it wouldn't be back. It wasn't like, gosh, are we ever going to play baseball ever again in our lives? We knew that it would be back. We just didn't know when. And we had this this hope, this anticipation. We we just hope for the day. We anticipate. We long for the day when baseball's back for us and our friends. It wasn't that we questioned if it it would be back, but we hoped for the day that it would be back. Does that make sense? And so it's a little different kind of, we just hope so much differently than you would in the New Testament. So think through that, think of more a longing for, an anticipation for something that's gonna happen. We know it's happened, it's set. We're just kind of looking forward with this hope and anticipation that we will have this thing at some point. And our sufferings produce character that eventually does produce hope. But again, not the kind of hope that's like, well, I hope God takes care of me. I I hope he's maybe listening to me. So godly character produces us the kind of hope that anticipates and longs for something that we look forward to with eagerness, something we know is coming. It strengthens our confidence in this hope that does not disappoint. So it strengthens your faith in the thing that you know is sure. That's what suffering does. It strengthens your resolve for the thing that you know is yours to attain. So Paul says hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's our guarantee. God has poured on his love. This is why we have this guarantee. We might not understand now why God doesn't come in on his war horse. We may not like that he rides in our life on the on the colt of a, of a donkey. But we have his word that shows us where we can put our faith when we don't have sight, when we don't understand. And his word and his promises will not put us to shame. They will not disappoint us. His promises will not disappoint you. And I've been... Reflecting on this a lot lately in my own life, my own self, in my uh, decades-long sparring match with depression, as someone who's more easily given to melancholy and just being down for no reason sometimes, I I think of this truth that trials produce hope. Hebrews 5.8, speaking of Jesus, says, although he, Jesus, was the son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, Jesus, who is God, who previously was exempt from temptation before he became flesh and blood, before Jesus was here on the earth, he was the son of God, second person of the Trinity, no temptation ever came upon him because he's God. That God becomes flesh, becomes human. He had this real and existential encounter with suffering and temptation and obedience. For the first time ever, he had a choice of, of obedience. I mean, this is like a new thing for him. I've never had temptation before. So he, he comes to this earth, and he has this encounter with suffering that he never had before. Temptation he never had before. They weren't just concepts that he viewed from heaven. But now he learned human obedience by enduring real suffering. I know we have maybe some questions about the nature of this text, but many of you know the same experience. For years, maybe you knew some of the cute verses on your coffee mugs, on the bumper stickers, and then in some kind of suffering, some kind of trial, you look at that same verse and you think, well, that's what that means. Th- that's what that truth means. Now now I really know. I-, I knew up here what that truth meant, but now I know in here what that truth means. This truth is real. This is my life preserver. Without this truth, I will drown. I will die. Before it was just kind of cute and neat. But now I understand this truth. That's what Jesus went through. He learned Real obedience to God the Father through his suffering. And as I've reflected upon my own weaknesses, my own trials and sufferings, I recognize that these things in my life, even a decades-old battled struggle with something like depression, these things, this is a school for me. These things teach me. I learn through them, Think about it. if Jesus had learned obedience through suffering. I think I need to learn also then probably through suffering. And so these things teach me. They teach me. They're my school. Because they force me upon God's promises in ways that I would never see or believe in God's promises. I'd be like the disciples. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on here. Suffering and trials helps me to get it. I get it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And that's our good news for today, church. We can be grateful and confident that indeed his glory will be revealed. This isn't the end of the story. Our sufferings and trials... Jesus on a donkey's colt. That's not the end of the story. He's going to come on his war horse. He is going to come on his war horse. Zechariah 9 is going to come completely true. That war horse is coming. But it's not here yet. Not here yet. But we have a hope that doesn't disappoint. like the disciples, we don't see it now. We can look again one more time at the quoted prophecy from Zechariah, and then I'm going to close with one more scripture and pray. From that prophecy in Zechariah, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. I want to read one more little section of scripture before I pray here. If you'd like, you can open up to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And this is just, this is the the, the bow on this truth today. You kind of see all this stuff, and I come full circle here. It says in verse 9 of chapter 7, After this I looked, this is our same John, by the way, this is John writing this as well. After this I looked, and behold... A great multitude, right? I'm, I'm thinking back to Passover. I'm thinking about the great multitude, right? So we got two great multitudes here. A great multitude that no one could number. This isn't two million now. This is what no one can number. From every nation, not just Israel. From all tribes and peoples and language. Now remember, think back to Zechariah 9. He says, I will declare peace to the nations, right? Not just Israel. And from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with what is in their hands, church? Palm branches! Palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great and glorious truth, God, that we will stand as your church, your people, a great multitude. There is a day coming when we will stand with palm branches Declaring blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to you our God and our King forever and ever. We look forward to that day when you come in on your war horse. We're so grateful that that is our future. And we confess God that now we just we live in this this already not yet time that is so difficult, so challenging, so discouraging. And we, like the disciples, because we don't understand what's going on sometimes, we know that we will look back, particularly on this day when we're waving those palm branches and we're going to understand. We're going to understand. And we're going to praise you for your wisdom and your might and your power. Lord, we thank you so much that we are yours your promises are true, fixed in the heavens, immovable, unshakable, we are grateful. Help us, Lord. Bury these truths in our hearts that when the, the empires of doubt or fear or lust or greed or pride or arrogance, when those things try to occupy territory that is not for them, God, these truths would be our sword of the Spirit. We would do battle against those empires in our hearts, that that, that empire of flesh in our hearts. We would do battle, not with our own strength, not with our own might, not with our own kind of version of self-control or willpower, but we would do battle with the sword of the Spirit. That we would do just as your own son did when faced with temptation. We would declare the promise of God. We would depend on your word. And we would hide inside of him our strong tower. Help us, O Lord. We love you. We thank you. We worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.